Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Babylon 5 versus Deep Space 9. This is Bob from Cascadia. I've got Matt from the Southland on the line. How you doing today, Matt? Doing pretty well. How about yourself? Pretty good. Pretty good. So we're here today to talk about the first two regular episodes of each show. We've got uh, Midnight on the Firing Line, which uh, aired on January 26, 1994. It was the uh, first regular episode of the first season of Babylon 5. It followed up on the TV movie, The Gathering, from uh, the year before. And then we've got Past Prologue, which by most countings is episode three of season one of Deep Space Nine. It aired uh, almost a year before, on January 9th, 1993. And it followed up on the two-part pilot, The Emissary, which we also covered um, last week on the show. And so, Matt, do you want to kick us off by describing the A-plot from Midnight on the Firing Line? Sure. We start off with uh, the remote colony of Aragash 3, which is an agricultural uh, a colony, actually. And we're unsure who actually is doing the attacking. We don't know uh, if it's one of the many races aboard Babylon 5 that is, is coming in to do it, but we later do find out. And the Centauri ambassador of Babylon 5 station, Londo Malari, he's informed of the attack and immediately believes it is the Narn uh, regime, a video over that of the of the attack and Londo is able to identify that there is a Narn ship within the attack. He confronts the Narn ambassador Jakar and uh, and said, who admits that he's just only now learned of the attack and that the Centauri have been making similar attacks and oppressing the Narn people for a very long time, which we we come to find out more about uh, as the season goes on. And a fight actually breaks out between the two. Londo apologizes to the station commander and who is Jeffrey Sinclair, who we're reintroduced to at this point from the uh, the TV movie. But he does say that he uh, Londo does say that he will kill Jakar, and that it will happen at some point within the next twenty years. Jakar uh, gets a video recording of the of Ragesh three, where we find out that Londo's nephew Karn appears to uh, state that the Narn were invited to the station or invited to the colony to be a part of it because it was formerly occupied by the Narn. Londo uh, puts together some sort of like a, a weapon to go and kill Jakar, but is stopped by one of the uh, the characters that's introduced later on. We'll talk about in a moment. Um, Talia Winters, who is a telepath, the chief of security, Garibaldi steps in and stops Londo from going any further. But there's a lot of foreshadowing in this piece because we it, it seems like it's pretty much destined that one day Londo may kill Jakar. We don't know for sure at this point. That's pretty much the, the A plot of the show. Yeah, yeah, that's great. That's great. One thing to clarify for uh, folks at home is we've, we've got the major powers on the Babylon 5 station. So we've got uh, the humans representing uh, Earth. We've got the Minbari. Uh, we've got the Narn and the Centauri, and then we've got the uh, Vorlon. And so, a big part of this, a big part of the A plot too, is um, Commander Sinclair, the station commander, kind of taking a uh, taking a leading role and trying to assemble a coalition among the Minbari and the Vorlon against the uh, Va- the Narn uh, incursion uh, onto the Centauri colony of Ragesh Three. And so, like the diplomatic complications of that on the Babylon Five Advisory Council, which seems to be like it's supposed to function as a sort of equivalent to like the UN Security Council. That's a that's a major aspect of the A plot. And then on the B plot, we've got 
newly arrived station telepath Talia Winters, who's uh, replacing Lida Alexander, who is the telepath on the station for the TV movie, but gets removed because uh, she mentally scans the Vorlon ambassador. And so she gets transferred off in for the in-story reason. Uh, Talia Winters is coming on and she's trying to report to the station XO, Lieutenant Commander Susan Ivanova. And uh, Ivanova is also replacing a character from the uh, TV movie. In there, we had a Lieutenant Commander Takashimi, who has also been written off the show. And so Ivanova is replacing her. And uh, Ivanova does not like telepaths, does not like Miss Winters, and constantly rebuffs uh, Talia Winters <laughs> to uh, report in. And then did you want to go add anything to that or go into the C plot now? You do have that the Earth Alliance is having its regular presidential election between the incumbent isolationist uh, Louis Santiago and Marie Crane. And I want to point out that Sinclair in the episode is rooting for Santiago to be uh, to remain president. And Ivanov is actually uh, wanting uh, Marie Crane to win. Yeah, yeah. No, it's interesting. We don't we don't get a whole lot of political detail on the election, but it is sort of interesting that the little we do get towards the end, I think when the newscaster is announcing that um, President Santiago has won re-election is that he was, it seems like he was more or less running on like a sort of uh, dovish foreign policy, which is to say, you know, a non-interventionist foreign policy, which is why um, Sinclair gets ordered off from his attempts to form a voting block uh, with the Minbari, the Vorlorn, and the Centauri against the Narn aggression. And we also get the sense that San- Santiago is a little bit protectionist, a little bit sort of, he wants to, you know, put the focus back on Earth. Uh, so it's a sort of interesting little uh, tidbit of like protectionist rhetoric in this mid 90s show, which, you know, you would see echoed a little bit, like maybe in Pat Buchanan's presidential runs in the decade and also like Ross Perot's presidential runs. So Santiago seems to have a little bit of echoes with that sort of domestic economic protectionism. Oh, and then the, the, the funniest part about it, though, is, yeah, you mentioned that Ivanova is voting for Crane, and I, I just adore her reasons for doing so, which is um, that she believes a president should have a firm chin or a strong and proud yeah. chin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I believe her rationale is that uh, President Santiago has uh, no chin and his uh, VP nominee has several chins, and that is an unfortuitous combination for uh, Commander Ivanova. We find out in this episode, though, that the Norn actually supplied weapons to Earth, correct? Yeah, so the Earthman-Bari War, and this will get this will get clearer later, but it, it ended 10 years ago. And yeah, we do find out that the Narn sold um, weapons to the Earth Alliance during the Earthman-Bari War. Although it seems like Sinclair and the Earth Alliance don't give any particular fondness to that because it seems like the Narn have a reputation for dealing with almost anyone. So they don't really view that as having been a special favor or anything. Right. When Jakar and Sinclair discuss, Sinclair says he'll sell weapons to anybody if, they, if there's opportunity. Correct? Is that? Yeah, yeah. And it, it, that it, it, it is a little bit of a different emphasis from the TV movie, but we kind of got some sense from the TV movie, too, that the Narn can be pretty, pretty mercenary in their in their dealings. Okay. And so it yeah. And I, I, I can't remember how clear it is from the TV movie and from this this first episode, but 
part of the reason for that is that the Narn really don't have much in the way of resources. The Centauri occupation really devastated the Narn homeworld. And so in a way, like they, they sort of have to be unscrupulous in business deals because they're, they're, you know, playing from a pretty bad hand as it were. I mean, is that kind of too, like while they're trying to take over the uh, Ragash three, Ragash three. I mean, that's one of the reasons they're trying to take it back and the, uh, from the Centauri. Yeah, yeah, there, exactly. there's this long, There's this long, long, drawn out, you know, there's this long feud between the two, basically, is my understanding, and that they go back and forth, back and forth. And I think that Dylan pretty much points it out, correct, at one point, saying, like, what's the point? Yeah, yeah. Like, if I remember or, right, it's been a the, the Centauri have occupied this particular former Narn colony for almost a century. Yeah. Uh, but But it is sort of interesting how we see, you know, the way that Earth and the Minbari seem to want the uh, the advisory council on Babylon Five to operate. Is they seem to want it. They say they want it to be a check on aggression. Full stop. That's always the rhetorically the way they talk about it. But in practice, in this episode, it is sort of interesting that its its main purpose seems to be they're trying to hold back a rising power, which is the Narn regime, and prop up a fading power, which is the Centauri Republic. Right. So even though like nominally it's just, oh, we oppose conquest, we oppose expansion, you know, it kind of depends on when you want to start the clock on, you know, what's a legitimate holding. And it's the sort of the actual effect of what the Earth and the Minbari are trying to do and ultimately fail to do is to, you know, keep the Narn down while propping the Centauri up, which is a sort of interesting political dynamic. Did you think that Jakar in this episode had the same sort of, uh, to me, he was way more villainous in the TV movie than in this episode. I mean, he is all, he's ultimately the, the bad guy in a sense, but at the same time, you're like, he didn't seem like this mischievous, very this theatrical, I guess is the word I'm looking for. Yeah. Yeah. I think they did kind of play it down. Right. Which I, I think we talked about this in our first episode. You could, or our first episode covering the pilot of the TV movie, rather you could see that as almost like, Sinclair's threat to Jakar at the end of the TV movie has worked, and that's why Jakar is toning it down. But on the other hand, it also does feel like they're kind of refining and changing the character as as it goes. And it it is really interesting. I think that just in terms of audience sympathy, like probably most people will be sympathizing with the Centauri at this point and uh, think the Narn are, you know the Narn are like more untrustworthy, more dangerous. And I mean, certainly there is, you can see some reasons for that. The Narns are framed here as the aggressors. They're framed as the expansionist. Wanda's nephew. Yeah. Wanda's nephew. Well, when he's like, hell, he's pretty much uh, under duress. He's like made to give that, that statement that he, they invited them over, you know, to the colony, which, you know, is true. You can tell it's, 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 he's under duress at that point. I mean that that to me automatically puts the Norn in the in the you know evil category at that point. Yeah, yeah. But on the other hand, I mean we do get like the back history of the Centauri brutal occupation of the Narn. We do get the sort of and you know, I, I think also what maybe kind of informs people's tendencies to be more sympathetic to the Centauri over the Narn is just the fact that like Londo right now is a lot more charming and charismatic than Jakar. And, you know, it's also like the Centauri are more humanish, whereas the 
the uh, Narn are more alien, and we kind of see that played up in the thing you referred to earlier, Matt, where uh, Garibaldi and Londo are kind of bickering about how when the Centauri made first contact with Earth, which was Earth's first contact with a with an alien species, the Centauri claimed that they were related based on the physical similarities. Yeah, they really are. They're much uh, more similar than Chikor or I mean the Norn or or the Vorlon, uh, the Vorlons, which. We do get a chance to see that uh, in- inactivated suit at one point, Kosh's suit, which to me, once again, I'm going to say it, I think that it looks way more snake-like. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Did you have any other thoughts on that? Because that was a sort of interesting. Yes. One thing I picked up on um, when he, when Sinclair is talking to Kosh, if you look at the, the screen or whatever that's in front of, I guess, the entity or whatever, it's the exact same... Um, design as what's on the front of the suit mm, mm. and i, I, did, I did not that. catch that's that last time yeah so i don't know if that has something to do with their race like that's how they communicate or what but then it would it, the wall would glow when sinclair was talking to him and then when uh kosh actually got into the suit like his stomach area which was made of that had that same design would also glow mm-hmm. so, uh, i don't know what that i don't know what that's telling us i don't know if it's just some into, i don't know what it is but uh, yeah, he's very still extremely mysterious, uh, and you actually get to hear him talk for the first time, I believe. You yeah, get to hear you don't you didn't hear him in the uh, in the TV movie, and I keep yeah. saying him, but for all I know, I mean, I don't I don't know what their genders are, but you know, I shouldn't be so gender specific. But I, it, I think they gender Kosh is male on the show, but I might be wrong about that. It is kind of interesting because we've we've talked about on the show before how this is your first time through Babylon five. And whereas I've been a little through Babylon five, I've made it like into season two. And so, whereas I feel like I have a little bit more perspective on like the Minbari and the Narn and the Centauri than you do because of how much I've watched, I, I at the risk of a negative spoiler, I don't, I don't feel like I know anything more about the Vorlon than you do really. Yeah. They, I mean, they stay secretive. We haven't learned much at all, but they're, they're one of the, he's one of the more interesting characters to me. Yeah. Because you don't know what they represent, honestly. And what- yeah. And I, I can't remember how much this is a sense from this episode, midnight on the firing line and how much this is a sense from later episodes, but you get the sense that the Vorlon really actually don't care very much about the advisor council's decisions like it seems like very frequently they don't weigh in at all um they you know they were willing to weigh in like in the tv movie right when there was like the direct issue of extraditing sinclair but as a general rule they seem to be pretty unconcerned with the things that uh occupy the other four powers shift over some ds9 now and uh with past prologue now my brother would have been would have said past prologue <laughs> but uh so correct, but it's prologue and we'll go ahead. Uh, you want to tell us a little bit about it? Yeah. Yeah. So we have our A plot. We've got um, a Bajoran terrorist and an old comrade of uh, Kira, the XO of DS9 is fleeing the Cardassian union. And this uh, old comrade of Kira seeks asylum, um, which creates a real political morass between Bajor and the United Federation of planets and Cardassia and uh, dissident Klingons uh, here played by Lursa and Bator who, were uh, characters who'd shown up in uh, the next generation. They're the uh, daughters of 
the House Duras. And I think their most prominent appearance in The Next Generation is in the two-part uh, season four into season five cliffhanger redemption, where they help launch a Klingon civil war. And uh, they'll also have a pretty prominent role to play uh, in you know, terms of Trek chronology after this uh, episode in the, in the movie Generations. Right, and I was excited to see them. I, I was like, "Oh, those are those are characters that I recognize from Next Gen." So that so was a nice little. Um, once again, th- that world building where we're at now with DS Nine, being that Next Generation is still going on, and seeing some of the same characters just has an interconnection that we have never really had before with Star Trek until DS Nine uh, hit our screens. Um, looking at what other things going on in this episode, we've got uh, Bashir who is uh, cruised by the simple Taylor Garrick, who's one of my favorite characters on DS9. He is the uh, the lone remaining Cardassian on the station. And there's the possibility that he is a spy. And a lot of the episode centers around Bashir's curiosity of what uh, what Garrick really stands for. Is is he uh, telling the truth? Is he siding with the Cardassians? I think you, you see a lot more of the relationship between Garrick and Bashir, Bashir as the... Um, seasons go on yeah and it's fascinating right because it's you know a pretty famous thing in like star trek fandom that a lot of people uh read garrick as a a gay character which Mm. i'd never disagreed with but i i don't think i'd ever gotten like i'd ever read that that subtext or even that text like very overtly into Garrick until like rewatching this episode a couple years ago. And then especially rewatching it now, it's just, my God, like, you know, it's, you, you can't even really call it the queer subtext between Garrick and Bashir. <laughs> subtext. I mean, it's, it's so clear that Garrick is cruising uh, this, uh, this cute young doctor and the cute young doctor just has no idea <laughs> what's going on. And you even get the sense that, some of the other officers, especially uh, especially Jedzia Dax, kind of get the flavor of uh, Garrick's interest in Bashir and ways Bashir may not. I, I really loved when Bashir runs to ops to, you know, report to Cisco and the rest of the officers that he's been contacted by Garrick. Uh, Dax has a really suggestive question to him of, "What do you think you might want from you, Julian?" Right. <laughs> Right. It, it just Garrick's like possible role as a spy. And then this mm-hmm. the sense that Garrick may have some romantic or sexual interest in Bashir. Like, cause you know, he's the way he actually does enlist Bashir to play in the spy game, right? It's like, okay, I want you to, you know, come to my shop after hours and hide in a hide in yeah, a hide dressing room. Yeah. So there's me, just uh, there's just a rich amount of subtext with that, if it, if you can even call it a subtext. Have, have you read a stitch in time by chance? No, that's the novel that Andrew Robinson co-wrote. That's about Garrick's backstory. Correct. Yes. I haven't read it either. And I've, I've considered buying it, but it's one of those books on Amazon that's like way overpriced at this point uh, mm-hmm. to get in. So it's one of the older novels. Uh, I guess I guess it hasn't been republished in a long time. Like a, I think the last publication of it was in uh, 2000, maybe. Oh, so wow. I'm going to, uh, but I'm going to try to find it. I'm going to try to see if I can find a, a copy of it somewhere and uh, read it because uh, just being reintroduced to Garrick, you know, this is like my second or third time through DS9. I'm just like, wow, this is going to be, I wouldn't mind reading that backstory and piecing some of this together. But yeah. Uh, yeah. And I know, I know that novel is like really important for the DS9 relaunch because I think it was one of the last DS9 novels to come out while the show was on the air. 
and then it was drawn it, it was drawn upon very heavily by the re, the DS9 relaunch writers when they were continuing the narrative after the show ended. Uh, it's something I want to try to see if I can pick up at some point. Uh, I just don't want to pay like the really incredible <laughs> prices they're asking because while I like Garrick, I don't, I don't like him that much. <laughs> um, so one thing uh, I do want to note in the uh, in this episode is Kira calling up the admiral. It's almost like she's tattling on Cisco. Is that what you got from it? Yeah, I mean, in one sense, it is kind of like playing up Kira as like, you know, this kind of undermining first officer or this sort of, yeah, you know, almost like snitch first officer who's trying to go over Cisco's head. Although I think I'm a a lot more sympathetic to Kira in this episode, though, than maybe the episode wants me to be, because it's like it's important to remember, like Kira is not Starfleet, right? She's there to represent the interest of Bajor and, and, you know, in her estimation, like giving asylum and rehabilitation to, uh, to Tana Loesch, this, uh, this, uh, ter- you know, this terrorist is like what the, the healthy thing for Bajor going forward, because presumably she, she thinks Tana is a very capable figure who, if he could be politically brought on to the, along to the provisional government, he would strengthen the provisional government, but also, just as having an example of like a de-radicalized terrorist would be useful in like, you know, calming down the political instability that's still afflicting Bajor. So why do you think Kira though went over Cisco's head instead of going straight to Cisco to begin with? I mean, I think it's partially that she doesn't know Cisco very well and doesn't trust him uh, yet. I mean, and I, in fairness to her, like I think Cisco isn't really giving very clear or consistent signals about you know what he intends to do in terms of offering asylum to uh, to Tana or not. Um, so I, I you know I think it I think it's pretty instrumental, but it, it it is sort of really expressive of the general point that you know Kira just doesn't know or trust her commander yet. Do you think Odo plays kind of a, a part of a, meet, a intermediary between them? Yeah, yeah, it's kind of interesting because, like, Odo's technically his loyalty should be to Bajor too, right? Like, he he wears a Bajoran right. militia uniform too, but it seems like he's sort of he's sort of you know accepted Cisco a lot more readily than Kira has, and so we get the sort of interesting thing that both Odo can be kind of Kira's conscience when Kira's you know learning that uh, this former comrade of hers, even though she was never in this more radical terrorist group that um, Tana was in. Even he can be her conscious when she's realizing that she does need to, uh, she does need to betray her former comrade. And he can also be the one who kind of serves as the agent for reconciliation between Cisco and Kira. So that, yeah, that was a really interesting role for Odo. I thought comparing the two episodes, like what, what are you saying? Do we see anything that is you know, similar? We see any differences? What do you, what are you, what are we saying here? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, there is a, I guess there's even another subplot we kind of left out of our summary of Midnight on the Firing Line about the Raiders. And you can kind of see the Raiders as being a little bit of a plot comparison to the dissident Klingons. Although I, I really like the point you made earlier about Lursa and Bator kind of being this exhibit of the continuing connection that Next Generation and Deep Space Nine have as they're airing concurrently. So we had, you know, we had Picard in the uh, 
in the pilot. And now we have these two villains from next gen in this uh, third episode of the show. And then, you know, we're going to skip ahead a couple of, a couple of episodes and the next DS nine episode we cover is going to involve Q and Vosh who are also pretty great characters from next gen. So that's a, that's a pretty sort of interesting point about like the importance of this era of Star Trek as Star Trek develops this kind of more complicated universe where multiple shows have to kind of communicate with each other in some way. And uh, do you think they're, I'm, I'm thinking of Garibaldi from this episode, just this, he, he comes off as being very like, to me, he's, he's kind of blue collar, reminds me a little bit of O'Brien, but his sense of humor is just, do, do you think there are any characters on DS9 that have that same, I guess, level of humor? I don't know. It, it, I mean, I'm kind of struggling. Quark, Quark has a sense of humor, but it's a very different sense of humor than Garibaldi, I, I feel like. Although I, I do think your, your connection of Garibaldi to O'Brien is, is right, that they're both kind of like the everyman blue collar attitude. It's, it's interesting that they're both white ethnics, right? Like O'Brien right. is Irish. Garibaldi has an Italian name, although Garibaldi's Italian heritage is only very rarely played up on Babylon Five, from what I've seen, at least. From what I, from what I understand, he's, he's a New Yorker, correct? Yeah, that that would make sense. But yeah, so Ita- Italian American then, or I don't I don't even know I, I don't even have a real sense of how much the the U.S. is a, is still like a continuing political entity uh, in Babylon Five. And then uh, Ivanova is actually Russian, which I mean, I guess it's obvious by the name, but still like, <laughs> yeah, they, they, they're going to play that up heavily um, in, in this season. Although it's also, it doesn't, I don't think it comes up in this uh, episode, but she's also a Russian Jew, which is, will be heavily played up later too. You think we'll see any comparisons, anything similar between Ivanova and Kira? I mean, they both definitely have a, a kind of stridency to them that, you know, it, it could border, it could be read as a little cartoonish or a little sexist, but I honestly just think it's kind of like refreshing. Like it's, you know, granted, you know, we're talking about early 90s shows, female uh, command figure who's, you know, like pretty ruthless, pretty straight ahead. I, I think Kira and uh, Ivanova both have that, although, you know, it, it is worth noting that their important differences. Kira is a, a former terrorist and a very, you know, very astute political manipulator, even though she's sort of uncomfortable thinking of herself as a political figure. Whereas Ivanova is just a career military woman as, as her opinion on the presidential election being dictated by uh, chin sizes shows. She's not, she's not <laughs> particularly political. Do you think uh, with the Psycor, uh with her mother being part of the psychor, do you think that's something that's going to play up later on? Like, does that? Oh yes. Oh yes. Is, 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 it, is it genetic? Like, do we think that? Okay, because I, I felt there was some foreshadowing there. I don't want. I don't want sure to. I don't want to speak about where it goes, but yeah, it's it's definitely um, important, and it it is interesting too how much both Kira and Ivanova's mothers play a role in their sort of tragic backstories, right? Like we won't, we won't get to Kira's mother for a long time, but Kira's mother is also really important to her backstory. And a big difference between the uh, TV movie and uh, this episode of of Babylon five, we lose the doc. There's no doctor. Whereas we've got Bashir on DS nine. I know that I know later on down the road, we are introduced to someone, but, uh, I thought that was something that was very different, not having a, a, 
a lead doctor on a, on a space show is just kind of odd to me. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, we, we'll get a new doctor very soon. Um, yeah. which is honestly, I, I totally forgot that we didn't see the new doctor, uh, in the night no. on the firing line. So I'm glad you reminded yeah. me because I just, I just kind of assumed in my mind he was there, but yeah, no, he, he's not, you're right. He's not there yet. And then, but, uh, We'll, we'll see we'll see b5's new doctor and it is sort of interesting too like w- we can maybe talk about this more as we go but there's going to just be a lot more different approach to like plot problems in babylon 5 versus deep space 9 because on deep space 9 the the main cast members are going to tend to collaborate on things a lot more you know they're going to trade techno babble they're going to trade strategies towards resolving something and we you know we kind of already see this with the conversations in ops both about um garrick approaching bashir and about what to do with kira's old comrade tana on ops so we ha- we see a lot of this like collaborative working whereas on babylon 5 it tends to be that you know each officer has their area of specialty and there's not a lot of like crossover like ivanova runs the cnc and she handles traffic garibaldi handles security the new doctor handles medical and there's just not a whole lot of traffic and honestly sinclair uh, can sometimes feel more like an ambassador than a commanding officer what did you think of sinclair just kind of uh he decides he's going to go out in the uh, in the spaceship or whatever. I probably, what are they called? The I have to borrow the new name now. What the the fighters? Yeah, so it, it's interesting. It's something that's not going to carry over, I think, into season two as much. But in season one of Babylon Five, we're going to see a lot of the different officers, whether Sinclair, Garibaldi, or Ivanova, taking out Star Furies and leading missions. And yet, yeah, it, it seems a little unrealistic, right? Like you probably wouldn't want to have your three senior most officers on this uh, very sensitive and important military station, like, you know, leading, uh, leading dangerous missions uh, in attack fighters uh, in the star theories. But on the other hand, it it seems to like kind of narratively serve the purpose of uh, away missions usually do for Star Trek. Right. And it's kind of interesting that whereas in Star Trek, you get, a lot of away missions on a lot of different planet surfaces. And you still even get that in DS9 to a large extent, although obviously less so than say next generation or the original series. Whereas you don't really have very many scenes, at least in what I've seen in Babylon five on other planets. Uh, You don't have like, you know, quote unquote away teams. So these spider missions, at least in season one for the senior officers kind of have to serve that function. Sinclair, though, he decides to leave the station and he's supposed to be at this, you know, this, this, this meeting of all the ambassadors to decide on what to do about, um, about the attack on, uh, Ragesh three. And he's just like, nope, I'm going to go out my starfighters. He tells Ivana flat out, Hey, will you sit in the meeting for me and just pretend like I haven't had a chance to talk to you and let, uh, you know, vote. Yes. That's too <laughs> odd to you. Like what? <laughs> Well, it's sort of it's it's kind of interesting, right? Because it's on the one hand, the Babylon Five officers, and in particular Sinclair, are are micromanaged by um, by the Earth Alliance government a lot more than your Star Trek officers usually are, and so it's sort of interesting in that regard. But it, it's also interesting in that, yeah, he is willing to go. He is willing to go rogue. He is willing to, you know, selectively. Uh, to di- selectively disobey orders with plausible deniability. And I mean, you, I think you would see that kind of 
willingness in a lot of Star Trek characters, including Ben Sisko, uh, too. Right. But a lot of times it's more framed as like, you know, disobeying a rule or, you know, breaking the letter of the law, uphold the spirit of the law type thing. Whereas here, it's a, it's a much more like direct order from the civilian government that he is, you know, choosing to, with plausible deniability, not follow. One other thing I want to touch uh, touch on too, uh, in the TV pilot, we remember Delenn had those weapons, those rings or whatever that were, you know, they were obviously there as some sort of protection. Uh, and then in this episode, we learned that Londo can put together like weapons from all these other little things he has within his, his, I guess his apartment or whatever. And I thought that was strange that like, even though they're all there to be, to try to promote peace and, you know, work through things as this United Nations in a sense, um, they all secretly have weapons hiding somewhere within, within their rooms <laughs> just, just to, you know, kill somebody or hand or handle problems when they occur. Uh, did you, did you catch on to that? And then Garibaldi too. Garibaldi flat out telling Londo he was going to search his room in an hour. And if he found any weapons, he was going to be in trouble. I thought that was like, that was weird to me as well. You don't see a lot of that on DS9. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. I mean, I, you get the sense that those rings that um, Delenn uses on Jakar in the TV movie are like, she's not only using them offensively, using them as weapons, but you almost get the sense that they're more of like, there's some higher form of technology that they're not necessarily or primarily weapons. Whereas, yeah, you do have Londo just secreting this, uh, this uh, pistol in his, uh, through various parts of his room. And I don't know, you could read that as like just a general kind of, practice of paranoia and insurance like i don't know if we ever see jakar outright have a weapon on board i can't remember but you could, it's something i could see jakar doing too obviously and i mean you know who knows what uh kosh of the vorlons is up to but on the other hand you could also just read it as like you know this particular sort of characteristic of Londo, because even though Londo is, you know, from a Republic that's declining in its political power and its willingness to use force. Like we, we really see that in this episode that this current leadership of the Centauri Republic is just not willing to use force. And, you know, so Londo's willingness to, you know, have this weapon that he's secreted in his quarters may just be a general policy that a lot of people follow on Babylon five, including the ambassadors, or you could just read it as a particular thing about how even though Londo's peoples are kind of more embracing pacifism, um, Londo himself is, is not, he's, you know, still, still believes in this dream of, uh, you know, Centauri military power as it were. So what do we have to look forward to next week? Yeah, yeah. So we've got uh, episode two of Babylon 5, The Soul Hunter. And then I believe it's episode five of uh, DS9, which is uh, Culus, I believe. So we're going to see a soul hunter come to Babylon 5, whatever the hell a soul hunter is. And we uh, <laughs> will see Q and Vash uh, from the next generation uh, come to uh, Deep Space Nine. So it should be a good time. Hope everyone will join us. Thanks All right. For, uh, tuning in to Babylon 5 versus Deep Space 9. This has been Matt from the Southland, and I've got Matt from Cascadia on the line. We'll see everybody next time. <laughs> Rephrase that, Bob. Oh, did I mess it up? You <laughs> <laughs> got Bob from Ca Go ahead. <laughs> Bob from Cascadia and Matt from the Southland, and we'll there see everybody go. next time. <laughs> Thank you. All right.